thirsty that day. And I, so I found my water bottle. I walked over to the, the kitchen in our church office. Uh, and I was, uh, as I was walking over there, I realized that it was also time to change the filter on our Brita water pitcher. Anybody ever have to do that? Uh, and so uh, I, I take out the, the new filter. I look at the package. And I said, okay, I have to soak this new filter in the water for 15 minutes. I said, okay. Uh, so I put it in the water, set timer on my watch, and I go back over to my office. And timer goes off. And uh, go back over to the kitchen uh, and pull out the, the filter and install it in the pitcher. Uh, only to, uh, to put water in and then you ever watch the water drip down into the pitcher and that's always fun, right? You're like, okay, it's going to be faster if I watch it. So set a timer on my watch, went back to my office again, uh, waited for the water to go and then came back in. And then I, I come back in and I see that this, this water in the pitcher, that's supposed to be clear, is not as clear as I would have liked with a new filter. Uh, and then I remember on the package it says for the first uh, one to two uh, rounds on this new filter may have traces of carbon. So again, once again, I say, okay, let me set my timer, go back five more minutes and uh, go back and, and study. Uh, and I began to be impatient with this whole process, right? Uh, I didn't want to have to wait you know, a total of 25 minutes for clean water. I wanted it right now. And then as I'm standing there in the kitchen uh, of the, the office, Everything that I had been studying in John chapter 4 came to mind uh, of just realizing uh, that really what I'm describing here and having to wait 25 minutes to be able to have uh, water that would be then purified for several months because that's how long that that filter lasts. uh, To having to complain about that is really what we would call a first world problem, right? Uh, For the majority of human history, The idea of having clean, cold water uh, available to me at any point in time would be an absolute blessing uh, to be able to to hear or to... Sorry, getting a little bit of feedback. Can you turn it down? So I'm hearing. All right. Is that better? A little bit? Okay. Uh, But uh, the idea of having clear clean water available to me, really no further than any refrigerator or in any room in my house, uh, is a tremendous blessing. And again, it's something that that we take for granted here in the United States. But for most people throughout uh, world history, that would kind of be unfathomable uh, to say that, yeah, I have I have easy access to water. And what you could really say is that that what we have here in the United States is exactly what the Samaritan woman wanted in this chapter. If you look at me at chapter 4, verse 15, it says, The woman said to him, Jesus, after Jesus speaks about this water that he can give, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. That's exactly what we have. We, we hardly ever suffer from thirst, right? And if we are thirsty, we just get up and go to the kitchen and, and get a glass of water. Uh, it's so, so simple and so easy to quench our thirst. Nor does it require any, any effort as it would have for uh, the people in the, the first century. And if we're going to read this story, uh, this conversation between uh, the woman of Samaria and Jesus uh, at Jacob's well, we have to read it and understand it 
by stepping into the sandals of those who would have been there in the first century in the Middle East. Where water was a symbol of life. At that point in time, when you live in a desert, uh, water is, uh, is everything. Now, people only live where there is fresh water. And verse 14 is going to be the main idea of our passage this morning. Because in that verse, we're going to see that Jesus is as necessary for spiritual life as water is for physical life. But before we get there, uh, look at me just beginning at verse 1 in this chapter. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, He was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So verses 1 through 4, which we looked at last week, kind of provide the the background information to this conversation. And then verses 5 and 6, we're going to kind of set the stage for the conversation. Jesus has come with his disciples to this small town in Samaria that Jesus had to come through. We saw that in verse 4. It was by divine decree. He had to pass through Samaria. So he comes to this, this city of Sychar, really a small town. And this town is at the foot of uh, Mount Gerizim. Uh, and Mount Gerizim is uh, the focal point of where the Samaritan people worshipped. Uh, for centuries, this was where they had their temple uh, and where they worshipped. And the large city in that area is called Shechem. Uh, and Sychar uh, is close to this land, as we're told, in which Jacob had conquered and then given to his son Joseph, which is referring to a passage in uh, Genesis uh, chapter 48 where uh, uh, Jacob on his deathbed says, Hey, Joseph, I'm going to give you this land that I have conquered, uh, and I want you to take possession of it. And ultimately, later on in the book of Joshua, that is where Joseph is buried. So we have this land that is referenced, but we don't necessarily know when Jacob conquered this land, but it's come into his possession. And then the Samaritan tradition says, Hey, this well was dug by the patriarch Jacob. And so Jesus and his disciples come to this well. And it's important to know that in this narrative, there's two different words uh, for well. Uh, The first word refers to something that is more like a spring, a fountain, something that's constantly bringing forth new water. And then there's another word which refers more to what we would, in our English kind of understanding, call a well or what uh, the Jews would call a cistern, something that is dug out by men constructed, uh, and then it would have kind of a capstone at the top of it, like we have a a big stone kind of in the shape of a donut where you could uh, haul things or lower buckets down and haul water back up. Uh, And so this well is about a half mile south of town. And verse 8 tells us that Jesus sent his disciples into the town to go and get food. And so Jesus is left there on his own, and he's tired from his journey. We see the human weakness of Jesus. It doesn't mean he's not fully God. It just means he's also human, and he's tired from walking in the heat. And so he sits down, literally on top of the large stone at the top of the well, the capstone, and we're told that it's about the sixth hour. It means about 12 p.m., noon. So all that sets this stage for this conversation that's going to take place between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. 
Uh, and if you follow along with me, beginning in verse 7, we're going to see the beginning of their interaction. It says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, if you have, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, and as he did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What we see is Jesus initiating this conversation. It's an evangelistic conversation. Uh, And he's reaching out to this woman. And he's going to show her She's been thirsting after the wrong water. She's been, she's been thirsting after water that will quench her thirst in the immediate time. But she's been missing out on that which will quench her thirst for eternity. And this passage calls us to thirst for and drink from the living water that only Jesus can provide. But why should we want that water? What makes that water so special? Why should I want that water rather than anything else to drink how do i know that is what will satisfy me what we're going to see in verses 7 through 14 is two reasons why we should thirst for and drink from that living water that jesus promises to all who ask for it what we're going to see is reason number one is that because this living water is freely given to all who ask and secondly that because this living water continually brings forth new life And this first reason is seen in in verses 7 through 10, which we just uh, read uh, a second ago. But but if we look at these verses, uh, if if we were living in the first century, there were certain things about this interchange that would have been absolutely shocking to us. You know, if we really understood the the, the culture that uh, Jesus and the Samaritan woman are living in, the usual practice uh, of women is when they went to go and get water, Uh, They would have gone in groups. So as soon as we see a a solitary woman going to get water, little little flag would would go up and say, "Hey, what's going on here? Why is she why is she going by herself?" Additionally, common practice for that day was for women to go uh, get water when it was cooler, either earlier in the morning or later in the evening. Right? Who wants to go and work outdoors in the heat of the day? Just common practice. So the fact that she's by herself. And that she is coming at noon gets our attention. And then additionally, if we were familiar with the geography of this area, we would realize that there are other sources of water that are closer to the town. Jacob's well is both a, uh, a cistern that was dug out and constructed by Jacob, but he also, it's also a, a fountain. It's, it's an underground spring that he tapped into. But it's half a mile outside of town, so if there's closer places to get water, wouldn't you go to those, especially in the heat of the day? So all of these facts begin to 
that give us hints that this woman is a social outcast. And we're going to find out why she's a social outcast a little bit later. But just keep in mind her social position for right now. She comes to the well, and the social norms of the day additionally would have said that if if there is a Jewish man who's out by himself at a well, and a, a woman comes along by herself, that the Jewish man would remove himself from the situation. That he would walk off to the side uh, and stand maybe about 25 or 30 feet away and give, give some space. But Jesus did what? He completely disregards that. And he's literally sitting on top of the well. He's in essence saying, this conversation is happening. There is no way for you to avoid me. Right? I am not moving. And so the, the fact that Jesus doesn't move, you say, wow, this is what's going on here. Additionally, he speaks to her which was additionally shocking because there would have never been a conversation like this between a man and a woman by themselves in this situation. And because they're at a well, Jesus speaking to her might have even come across as slightly flirtatious, right? Uh, Ancient uh, Near East, uh, at this point in time, a well was a good place for single people to meet, right? If you you think back in the Old Testament, uh, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses all met their, their wives, at a well, right? So this would maybe come across a, a, a unique way to this Samaritan woman. But the shock factor doesn't end there. Not only does Jesus not move, not only does he speak to her saying, give me a drink. But remember, Jesus doesn't have anything to draw water with. His disciples went into town to buy food and they probably took with them uh, the bucket, which travelers would have carried. comes a kind of... Uh, animal skin that you would have been able to draw water out of the, the well with. And so he asked this woman to give him a drink. And that would imply, that would mean that if Jesus wants to drink the water that she's going to give, how is he going to have to drink it? From her vessel. From her water vessel. And verse 9 shows us that, that little parenthetical statement. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Meaning that they would have never shared a drinking or an eating utensil with the other. Because it would have, the Jews would have said, that that's going to defile me. It's going to make me ceremonially unclean. So all of these things, as Jesus makes this request, is, you know, Jesus is sitting there at the well, the woman comes, and he says, hey, give me, give me a drink of water. And she, she's just absolutely perplexed. What is it you mean? You look at the first part of verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She's confused. And then Jesus, in verse 10, kind of says something that's going to be even more confusing to her. But in what he says, he's going to transition the conversation from just speaking about physical water to, to speaking about something that is far more important. Look at me at verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the way that the Greek is put together here uh, is that Jesus is assuming uh, that what it is a hypothetical situation. If, if she knew, but she doesn't. And that's evidence because if she did know who Jesus is, 
if she did understand that He is the Son of God, the Messiah, then she would do this. Or if she understand, if she understood the gift of God, referring to the salvation that only Jesus can give. Say, if you would have understood those two things, the gift of God and who I am, then she would have done two things. She would have asked, and then Jesus would have done what? He would have given. Jesus is saying, if you had only knew, I'm asking you for water, but you should be asking me for water. You should be asking me for living water. And if only she would ask, Jesus would give it to her for free. That little word there for the the gift of God is is always the idea of a grace gift. It's something that is given freely without any type of exchange. And uh, and that is the point here. That Jesus gives living water to all who would ask for it. He gives it freely. Now, uh, I've I've signed up for this uh, Chick-fil-A One app on my phone. And, And every so often... I get a little email from them, and it's like my favorite email. I, I don't like email. I find it to be very uh, much a drudgery. But I love th- this email that I occasionally get from Chick-fil-A. And, it, and the subject line it has two words. It says, just because. And I know, yeah, someone else has the Chick-fil-A one app too. Uh, I can see that. Uh, that. That when I get that little email that says, just because, there's going to be something good inside. That they are just going to give me something for free. Just for kind of being a part of this, hey, I want you to have this. And I love it because then I say, oh, what do I get this, this month? Uh, and then I, I get a free gift. There's nothing else I have to do. I can just take that into the store and say, hey, give me my, give me my cookie, give me my milkshake, give me my Chick-fil-A sandwich. And I, I love that, right? Now, there's a sermon application that everybody would be very happy uh, to, to apply to their life. I'm going to go get this Chick-fil-A one app and get free stuff, right? Uh, but but the, the free gift is the emphasis. And that's what we have to understand. Jesus is saying, if you only knew, if you would just ask me, you wouldn't have to go through all of this. There is something infinitely greater and better than the water that she is pursuing at this moment in time. And Jesus is trying to get her to see and understand that. Jesus promises to freely give living water to everyone who would ask. But then that, that raises another question, is what is he talking about when he says living water? Is that that water with that like thin layer of bacteria at the top, like it's, it's alive? Uh, what does he mean when he says living water? Well, living water, to the Jews, refers to water that is flowing. It's a river or a stream, which would be contrasted with stagnant water. Water that's in a pond or in a cistern. So say, I can give you living water. And it was said that standing water comes from man, but living water comes from God. And it was living water that was necessary to be purified ceremonially in the Jewish culture. If, if, you were, if you had defiled yourself, if you had sinned, you were unclean before God, part of the, your process of getting back into right relationship with God is you'd have to do these, these cleansing concepts. Uh, and to be cleansed, you had to use water from a stream or water that was flowing rather than just going into a pond or something else. So 
When Jesus is speaking of living water here, he is speaking about water that can cleanse her, but he's also speaking about something so much more. If you turn with me just over a few pages to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So when Jesus is speaking to this Samaritan woman, Yes, He is offering her water that is able to cleanse her. He is offering her living water, but He's also offering her so much more. This is a promise. This is an allusion to the ministry of the Spirit living and dwelling within her. And at different times and places in this Gospel, sometimes it said that Jesus is the living water, and sometimes it says that He sends or, or gives the living water, referring to the Holy Spirit. And did you catch also that since Jesus is claiming to be the source of living water, there's also a a very subtle claim on his part that he is God. That he is the source of living water. If he can give water that is freely flowing, he is claiming to be God. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah 17, 13 says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Psalm 36.9 also says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. And the message here in John 4 is clear that we are called to see Jesus as the source of living water, as the one who is able to cleanse us, the one who is able to give us new life, the one who alone can wash away our sins. This is what Jesus is trying to get this Samaritan woman to see and to understand and to comprehend. If you are here today and you have not trusted in Christ, I would urge you, I would beg and plead with you to look to Christ in faith, to see that only He can cleanse you, only He can satisfy you, only He can give you the living water that you need in life. But for many of us here who've already trusted Christ, here's something else for us to think about. You have already acknowledged in faith that that your hope and your trust is found not in yourself, but in Christ. But here's the question. Do you continue to believe that on a day-in and day-out basis, that Jesus is the fountain of living waters? Do you continue to, to look to Him to sustain you? Or have you turned to something else? Again, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. If you turn with me there, it's a very important verse. And, and one that... If we were Jews in the first century and we we read that term, living water, this verse would immediately pop into our minds. Jeremiah 2.13 The prophet writes, 
says, For my people have committed two evils. For one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And secondly, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Those are the, the, the two twin evils that the people of Israel had committed against God. They had forsaken the fresh water, the fountain of living water that He provides, and they had turned instead to man-made cisterns, cisterns that they themselves had made. And then how did those cisterns turn out? They're broken. They're leaky. They're not finished as they should. This passage describes our human tendency towards idolatry. Idols are broken cisterns. We turn to idols because we view them as a solution to our problems or as a source of satisfaction. But these idols that we turn to are never able to satisfy us. They are indeed broken cisterns. Money, sex, alcohol, drugs, those can be idols. But along that same idolatry can also be our children, our work, being right, or our spouse, or our house. All of those things can be idols that we begin to look to as a solution to the problems that we face in life or as a source of our satisfaction. We begin to turn to those things thinking, hey, this is going to make me happy. This is going to solve everything. And you know what the difficulty is? Is those idols, those broken cisterns, they do solve our problems for just a little bit of time, don't they? They bring sometimes an immediate relief or a little bit of satisfaction. But what, what eventually happens? We begin to see the true nature of those idols. That they are broken cisterns. And as God's people, what are we called to begin to see and to notice? And this water tastes really gross in this broken cistern. And we begin to, to think about it and realize, why, why am I down here drinking dirty, filthy water, trying to go my own way, Maybe I should turn back to the fountain of living water. Maybe I should turn back to Christ rather than giving in to my sinful desires, rather than following after these idols. Again, sin, sin satisfies for a time. But here's something to keep in mind. I love what uh, one biblical counselor has said. He says, sin never satisfies sinful desires. It only awakens them. That if you have a sinful desire and you sin to meet that desire, it's not going to bring ultimate satisfaction. It's just going to awaken a stronger desire for that sin within you, driving you deeper and deeper into your idolatry and away from Christ. And really, as we'll, as we'll see, this, this whole conversation that's going to progress between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, he's, he's going to be speaking about worship. And she's going to shift the conversation to there, as we'll see later on in, in the chapter next week. But, but Jesus right now is calling her to see that the broken cisterns that she has been turning to, she needs to abandon. And rather than continuing her pursuit of those cisterns, she needs to look and pursue Him. 
the fountain of living water. That is what He promises to everybody who would ask of Him. Every person who calls upon the name of Jesus in faith, every person who trusts not in themselves, but trusts in what Christ has done and who Christ is, receives that living water. We, we are made new. The old is gone. The new has come. So the easy application here is, hey, may we all turn to Christ with complete faith and trust. Not just a one-time deal. Not just a yes, I've trusted, but a continual basis. Because again, we have to see our tendency to make broken cisterns for ourselves. But may we always come back to Christ. I quoted this verse last week and I'll quote it again this week because it's so good. Isaiah 55.1 Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. It is a free gift that Christ gives to all who would call upon Him. That is the first reason we should thirst for and drink from the living water that He offers to us. But then secondly, what we see in verses 11-14, through 14, the second reason that we see is that because living water continually brings forth new life. That's why we should pursue living water over and above anything else. Look at me at those verses. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And in her response, this woman again only thinks about the literal kind of understanding of what Jesus is saying. She's missing the, the bigger picture. She's just literally thinking living water, flowing water. Hey, Jesus, where are you going to get this water? You're coming and you're offering something, but I don't see a, any type of a bucket. And it's a deep well, probably over 100 feet. So she's like, what are you going to do? How are you going to give me living water? She's probably chuckling, right? And then she kind of throws in that little question, loaded with irony. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Is that who you think that you are better than, Jesus? And the Jews of the first century, they would have had a, a, a tremendous respect and, and almost a veneration of the patriarchs, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, as Jesus makes this claim that he can give her living water, seems like he's implying that he's greater than Jacob. So she, she asks this question, again, the way that it's phrased in the Greek implies that she's expecting a negative answer. She's expecting Jesus to say, oh, you know what, no, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying I'm greater than Jacob. But we know as the readers, what? Jesus is greater than Jacob. And so we kind of read this and chuckle and we begin to see, wow, John is again using irony here to make this point. And she even goes on to list some of the exploits of Jacob as it pertains to this situation. She said, look, you think you're better than Jacob? Jacob gave us this well. And he himself drank from it. And then his sons drank from it. And then all of his livestock drank from it. And because the well is still there 2,000 years later, everybody in that region has benefited from this well. And she's saying, you think you're better than Jacob? Look at how many people Jacob has brought water to. But Jesus is going to answer her question. And in his answer, he's going to demonstrate 
how he is indeed greater than Jacob. Look at me. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So he says everybody... He draws this comparison. You drink this water, you'll you'll be thirsty again. But what I'll give you is far greater. And uh, again, in the Greek, uh, the emphasis is magnified because it's more along the idea of this, that that whoever is continually drinking of this well, of this water, they're going to keep on drinking and they will continue to be thirsty more and more. But Jesus draws this contrast. Whoever sips from the water that I will give him will never ever be thirsty into eternity. It's really what Jesus says. You take one drink of the living water that Jesus provides, and you're good. You'll never be thirsty, never ever, for eternity. Then he gives some additional information for her to, for her to consider. He explains, in essence, how this is possible, that she will never thirst again if she looks to and trusts in him. Now, this living water which Jesus gives becomes something inside of a person. And, and the normal experience of human logic, you think of a, which would, would come first, uh, a, a cistern or, an, or a well or a, a fountain, right? And usually the fountain brings forth water and then the water goes and, and does its purposes. But Jesus says just the opposite. I'm going to give you water and that water becomes a fountain in you. Like, wait a second, how does that work? A limited amount of water becomes something that's going to bring forth continually living water within an individual? What is Jesus saying here? Saying, what I'm going to give you is going to transform you. What I'm going to give you is going to make you into something completely different and it's going to have an ongoing effect for the rest of your life. It's not a one-time change. It's going to be an ongoing event. You're going to experience newness of life on a regular basis. Back in uh, January of 1901, in a little town of Beaumont, Texas, was an oil field known as a spindle top that belonged to a company named Lucas Oil. And on January 10th, 1901, uh, there was an oil deposit that was struck by Lucas Oil. And the, the deposit was so large that out of the oil well, uh, petroleum shot up over 100 feet up into the air. And it took them nine days to be, to be able to, to cap it and to begin to control uh, this spring of oil that was welling up. And what was amazing, as soon as that oil was, was struck in Texas, guess what happened to Texas? Texas changed from being a little rural farming community, from being a, a state made up primarily of farmers and ranchers, and almost overnight, it became an industrial powerhouse. Everything shifted. It was never the same once oil had been struck. Once that, that black gold, as they called it, began to, to pop up out of the ground, everything was different. 
That's the idea that Jesus is communicating here. Once there is a spring of living water within you, you will never be the same. Once the Spirit is living and dwelling inside of you, your life will be renewed on a daily basis. Whoever looks to Jesus in faith, Jesus will give them living water and a wellspring will pop up inside of them that will continue to bring forth transformation in their life. Pretty amazing to think about. That wellspring continues to spring up perpetually. Again, that's an emphasis there in the Greek. There is a continual bubbling, a continual springing up of water within that person all the way to eternal life. I love what Leon Morris says about this. He says, The life that Jesus gives is no tame, stagnant thing. It is much more than merely the entrance into a new state, that of being saved instead of lost. It is the abundant life. And the living Spirit within people is evidence of this. Back in John chapter 3, in his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus seemed to be emphasizing the need for, for him to be born again. Hey, this, uh, this work of regeneration must take place in your heart, Nicodemus. And it's not something that you do. It's something that God has to, to do in your life. He's got to give you a new heart. You must be born again from above. And here there's an echoing of that. You need to drink of the living water that Jesus offers. But here it's not just an emphasis on the, the, the moment of regeneration. Here it's once you are born again. Once you are regenerate, your life is going to be different from that point forward. There's an ongoing change and transformation and ongoing sanctification in our lives once we begin to follow Christ. And that if we look to Jesus in faith, if we trust in Him rather than in ourselves, we will begin to see and experience that. We will be transformed by the living water welling up inside of us. Again, this hints at uh, what it was spoken of in Ezekiel chapter 36. Speaking of what God would do in the new covenant. Speaking of what God would do through Christ. We are partakers of the new covenant. Ezekiel says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you, will, you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. There's the the concept of regeneration that we saw in John chapter 3, right? God does a work. He says, hey, that old stony heart that's hard that I can't do anything with, let me take that out and let me put in a heart of flesh that I can mold and shape and make more and more like Jesus. But then we have John chapter 4. He says, yes, that that same truth is going to happen and then you're going to be different from that point forward. The next verse in Ezekiel Speaking of the results of the new heart, says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I would say this, why is all of this important? Because as we live the Christian life, sometimes there are hard seasons. Sometimes we come to Sunday morning, sometimes we come to you know, whatever day or time our, our growth group is. We, we come to those gatherings with a longing for hope, with a need for some encouragement. Because we begin to see and understand as we look at our lives that something needs to change. 
Sometimes we don't even realize what needs to change. And sometimes we don't even know how to change. But this gives us hope. Because it says that change is possible. And that 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 change, that hope, is to be found in the person of Jesus. That's what he is saying to this Samaritan woman. You need to change, and you're going to only change through me. Because only he provides living water. The beauty of the gospel, the beauty of what we see here, is that Jesus doesn't just promise a one-time spiritual cleanse. He doesn't just take you through the spa. That's your spa day. You're good to go now. You've got a nice new shine on you. Jesus doesn't just promise that. He promises to transform us. Take all of the hurt, all of those broken cisterns that we've been drinking from, and says, hey, let me lead you to water that is infinitely greater. Come and drink of the living water that I give. That is what he is calling not only this Samaritan woman to do, but each and every one of us. We are here looking for hope and encouragement. We need to see that change is possible. We need to think and understand of this spiritual truth that when we drink of the living water that Jesus gives, the Holy Spirit dwells now inside of us. And He is that water. And that is how living water becomes a spring in us, welling up continually. Keeping these things in mind, that transformation will take place. I love 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Philippians 1.6 And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But what Christ has begun in us in regeneration, he will continue by transforming us for the rest of our lives. If we place our trust in Christ, we will be transformed. We will have hope in every situation that we are facing. In any and every trial, in any and every circumstance. Jesus is the one who will be the solution to our problems. He is the one who is the ultimate and final satisfaction in our lives. And it is He that we must look to. And this is what we are urged to do today. As we see this in John chapter 4. As we see Jesus speaking to this woman at Jacob's well, he steers this conversation exactly where he needs, where it needs to go. He initially just says, hey, give me a drink. And then suddenly he's, he's saying, no, you need to ask me for water. You need what I have. That's what he says. And he gave her two reasons to convince her that, that she needed the living water that he gives. Number one, it's free. You ask, Jesus will give it. And secondly, because it's so much more than a one-time free gift. It's a transformation. It's a wellspring of water popping up within your soul. And that's important for us to keep in mind. But uh, Back in uh, October of last year, 2018, there was a story that caught my uh, attention, uh, caught the attention of many in, the, in sports media. 
There was a the top wide receiver for the New York Giants. His name is Odell Beckham Jr. Uh, and uh, in, the, in halftime of one of the games, he had to to get an IV because he was dehydrated. Uh, and this wasn't the first time it had happened. So when a reporter came and asked him about it, he was very honest and, and candid. And I was absolutely shocked and mortified by his answer. What he said was, I, I don't like water. I just hate drinking water. And, and in my, my mind, I'm just shocked. I'm like, you are a professional athlete. You get paid millions of dollars to be at the top of your sport. And the most basic thing about being an athlete is drinking water. And yet he says, I hate to drink water. And he drags his feet on this most basic of things. And it ends up impacting his performance on the field. And me, being a former football player and a quarterback who doesn't like prima donna wide receivers, just grew frustrated. How is it that you can not want to drink water? You're a professional athlete. And then I began to think about this, of how, how often traces of that are in my own heart as well. And in the hearts of God's people. And again, we have the fountain of living water. And yet so often, what do we do? We drag our feet. We turn to, to broken cisterns to try and quench our thirst. We don't look to Him. We look everywhere else. And we see it so clearly with this hotshot receiver, Right? Like, dude, just drink water. Come on. That's oftentimes what we need to say to ourselves. When we have found ourselves losing heart, being discouraged. Stop running to those broken cisterns. Run to Jesus Christ. The fountain of living water. What is it this morning that you have been turning to? What broken sister and what idol have you wrongly believed can be a solution to your problems or a satisfaction or a source of satisfaction? Has it truly been either of those? And may we all thirst for and drink from the living water that Jesus promises to give to us freely. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come to you in humility with a desire to confess our sinfulness, with a desire to confess our wayward tendencies. Lord, we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. Lord, we pray and praise you for your patience. Lord, you have been so kind to us. Lord, forgive us for turning away from you the fountain of living water. And help us 
to abandon the broken cisterns that we have hewed out for ourselves. Lord, help us to confess them to you. To confess our idols. And to turn to you in faith. Trusting in you. Pursuing you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. May we be convinced, ever more so in our hearts, that Jesus is the solution to all of our problems. And He is the ultimate source of satisfaction. Nothing else in this life is able to satisfy. Lord, impress that truth upon our hearts. And then, Lord, may we, may we be a people with that exact message on our hearts, on our minds, and on our lips. And may we be willing to do even as Jesus did here, to guide and direct conversations towards people's biggest need. A need for salvation, a need for forgiveness, a need for the living water that only Jesus can give. Lord, may that be on our hearts and on our minds. And may you satisfy us completely this day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.